You get invited to a party. You're aware that the person that invited you plans to kill themselves. They tell you they're in the suicide pact with their boyfriend and tonight is the night they will both end their lives. You say nothing, you don't try to stop it. A couple of days later, you hear on the news that only one person died that night. And not by suicide, but as an overdose inflicted by their own girlfriend. This is the story of Joey Cinque. Look at that, it's Eiffel Towers, how I'm treating your eyes today, because your ears are not gonna be treated right with this story, it's morbid as shit. I sense I'm in the presence of greatness, I notice you, you notice me, we're all here in the same place, because until now, you might have been a bit lost, but I think we found the right true crime channel for you. This is the series I do on that very same true crime channel, so don't go anywhere. And if you're by any chance starting the Gone Bad series from this very video, it is most definitely... 200% the right one to start it from. And then after watching this video, go and binge on the playlist of all of the other cases that I have covered on this channel and for Gone Bad. But who did we speak about last week? The slave master, John Robinson guy. With him, you could really say that he was born that way or kind of like started very early. So there wasn't like a defining moment where he switched from being this decent human to crime, which is what this series is all about. We definitely can't say the same for the person we're gonna be talking about today, Anu Singh, because they had a couple of moments where they could have turned around and, you know, continued in the decent direction. They were on the right pathway, but no, they just continued not to do that. So Anu Singh fits this bill perfectly. And that is not a compliment. <laughs> Most definitely not. Now, somebody, some imaginary editor, please put 60 seconds on the clock, okay? 60 seconds of a sideline, and then I'm diving straight in, I promise. First of all, Australian crimes, what the actual fuck? I want to have, like, a channel or a podcast just dedicated to Australian crimes, because they always flabbergast me. Like, whenever I hear about, like, Ivan Milat, or Ivan Milat, because that's how his name is pronounced. He's from my ends, I should know, but sure. Or that freaking couple of serial killers, Bernie, they were weird as shit. I covered Kelly Lane on the podcast, that again, what the hell. And now this one that I'm covering here, I don't know how I have never heard about this case, but this shit is insane, alright? So I don't know what they're feeding you down under, but your crimes are like a whole different ballpark. They're like things that you would have never thought of or heard of before. Australians are just like, no, we should, we should commit that. Imagination, bitch, because life is your creation. Second point that I wanted to mention before diving into the case. As I mentioned, the criminal's name in this case is Anu Singh. I will only be referring to her as Anu, because say Anu Singh with me a couple of times. Do it, do it. Anu Singh, Anu Singh, Anu Singh. What you keep hearing, if you say it as a full name, is Anus, okay? Or maybe you're normal. <laughs> I don't know. Either you, you hear perverted stuff in life, in everything, or you are normal. So that's that. And now let's compose ourselves and uh, dive into the case. They were composed all this time. Literally every single person listening, they were all composed. They were just waiting for you to get it out of the system. Okay. The case of Anu Singh. 
Anu was born in India on 3rd of September 1972. She was born to Indian-Australian parents, Paddy and Surinder Singh. Both of them were doctors. And the family emigrated from India to Sydney in 1973 when Anu was only a toddler. After this case would go to trial, her dad would be one of the witnesses and he would describe Anu's childhood. And what he would say was that Anu was really clingy from her early age. She was obedient, she was a good student, and she was really talented within sports. But at home would be really clingy to her parents and she would sleep with them in their own bed up until the age of four or five. And this clinginess kind of continued all the way through her life and will be a really prevalent topic through this video as you will get to notice. Her dad said that she matured really early and from the age of 13, so through her teenage years, she kind of started putting education like as her secondary consideration and started going out with friends, started dressing in skirts, and sort of wasn't really as studious as before. But despite of that, she was, and now I will probably mispronounce, because I'm not sure if it's pronounced dukes or ducks, but basically this is the title that they give you as the highest-ranking student in Australia, and they kind of give it to you according to, like, what you ranked highest in, so you can be, like, ducks in literature, or, like ducks in art or whatever. I have a feeling it's dukes because ducks just sounds like ducks, but somebody will come for me in the comments. So due to this, she was actually admitted to university to study a double degree in economics and law. But between 1991 and 1992, in her first year of uni, she was really suffering. She was really homesick and she would call her parents five, six times every day and she would go to spend every weekend at home. And then midway through the year, she was involved in this accident. She didn't have any major injuries, but when her parents came to visit her, she just told them, like, I'm not studying really well and I'm just constantly homesick. So they suggested, okay, then just defer from studies this year and you will return to uni the next year and now let's just go home. In 1992, she does return to finish her degree at university and she isn't homesick any longer. And she isn't homesick because she started dating this guy called Simon Walsh. As she is completing her degree and graduating with Bachelor of Economics, she also moved in with Simon. But then around 94, 95, Apparently, in court, they described she had this brief affair. She started cheating on Simon with Joey. And Simon, of course, found out and moved out of this accommodation, but not before basically pissing her off and telling her that she was always intellectually inferior to him. And this seemed to have triggered something in her mind, because from this point on, there is a clear switch in her behavior. Around this time, she started resorting to taking drugs and also started getting obsessed with her body. 
And just a bit of a trigger warning here, if you're not familiar with this case, there is like a documentary made about it called Joy Chinque's Consolation, and also there's a book written on this case. But this next part in particular is about a food disorder, and it makes even me uncomfortable when I watch this, just as somebody who varied with her weight a lot. So this will probably make you uncomfortable regardless, but she started obsessing heavily in that way. I might just put a timestamp on the screen just if you want to skip that part. But I would suggest if you can to listen. It's nothing disturbing. It just kind of makes you feel uncomfortable, but it helps you to understand her mindset. During these periods where she would be depressed or sad, she would also stay with her parents and her dad would observe that she was constantly just sad or teary, unable to sleep. And soon he started being concerned by the amount of weight that she lost. At certain point, she was what I would probably say anorexic for a grown-up person because she weighed around 40 kilograms. She would show her dad and later Joey like any hanging skin and would call it fat. And everybody would be saying to her, no, there's no fat there. You have lost so much weight. That is just skin. But she wouldn't believe them. She would constantly feel like there was some loose skin somewhere that she needs to work on that part of her body. And once her parents noticed that her diet basically just started consisting of Diet Coke and Tim Tams, they said, we think you have an eating disorder and you should be seeing a psychiatrist. But I'm not sure from the source material that she ever proceeded with the psychiatry treatment. Because at this point, from the court records, actually her dad gave her some money because she wanted to have a liposuction. But she never went through with it. So this was the state of mind Anu was in when she met Joey. They met on a night out and immediately clicked to the point that they decided to have a long-distance relationship before Joey would eventually move to Canberra. Is that how you pronounce it? I'm trying my best. I think it's Canberra. I listen to multiple people say it. <sighs> Fingers crossed. Joey was described by everybody as an extrovert in every group. He would be vivacious. He would be that friend in the group that if any two friends would start arguing, he would be the peacemaker. He would be like, no, nope, no, I'm saving this friendship for the benefit of the whole group. He was just that type of person. And also, again, super smart. He studied civil engineering, he graduated, top grades. And he started working in his hometown. So he was at a really happy place in his life when he met Anu. He graduated from university with a degree in civil engineering. And soon after, got a job at a firm in his hometown. He was always happy, always busy. He couldn't stay still. He just had to do two or three things at a time. I'm not saying this because he's not here, but he had a lot of more friends, a lot of friends. It was the type that they start fighting with people like that. You know, it was not, not, not that. Actually, if uh, anything, he tried to, to calm people down. He never had a bad word to say about anyone, and I think that's what 
really magnetised him in terms of people just being drawn to him because he was essentially a good person. Um, he, he wasn't someone who, you know, who sought confrontation. Um, he was always very social. He could always have a conversation with just about anyone and I think that's why so many people just thought so much of him. You shall familiarize yourself with Maria and Nino, who, of course, are Italian. Joey is Italian himself. His first name is actually Giuseppe, but everybody in Australia called him Joey. And if you're anything like me, you might cry by the end of this video. Just saying, I have cried like I don't remember ever crying by the end of a research. I just lost it. Because these parents are truly the salt of the earth. Even though from the outside, this relationship looked perfect to so many people, the close friends would say that they were getting really odd vibes from Anu when they would actually meet in person. Like, she was always the center of attention, and not in a good way. This godson that was interviewed that you have just seen in the video actually said, like, she would be intentionally just jumping from topic to topic, kind of like looking for the most effect, looking which topic would cause the strongest reaction and then stick to that one. So she would just be talking about, like, oh, everyday life, then, like, afterlife. And then she would just mention how her and her ex-boyfriend had such a close relationship. It was almost incestuous. But this would be in front of Joey, who would of course be uncomfortable, but he wouldn't say anything. And his friends slowly noticed how it seemed like he wasn't himself anymore. Like, she would take all of the attention, it would always be about her, and this vivacious, vibrant, outgoing friend that they all knew kind of just was lost in all of that. And Joey's parents, Maria and Nino, Maria, as you could tell from just that first clip, was the one who spoke for, like, 90%, which just makes me love her dad, like, even more. I just love both of them so much. But Maria, what she said was Joey would come home, right, to visit them, because now he moved to Canberra to, like, live with his girlfriend, so he was kind of actually living long distance from his parents. So he would come visit them, and then they would sit down to eat dinner at six, which I was like, Maria, that's too early for Italians, but okay, cool. I guess you Australianized yourselves, so they would sit down to eat dinner at six, and at 6.10, Anum would be calling and Maria would get pissed off. So one such night as she was calling, Maria just was like, hey, Joey, give me the phone. Just give me the phone. And she took the phone from Joey and told Anu, in this house, we eat dinner at six. Call at seven. My son is not going to just get up from the table. What, like, you know that we eat dinner at six, right? So, like, it's hella rude because then Joey would get up from the table and would talk to his girlfriend. She's like, well, that's great. We haven't seen our son for months and now we have him for 10 minutes for dinner because this possessive girlfriend is taking away even this amount of time that we have with him. So it's safe to say that Maria and Nino did not really like her from the get-go. And when his parents and his friends and Maria's godson, when every single one of them would sort of, like, ask him, like, 
why? Like, you kind of notice all of this as well. They just realized that Joey just wanted to be with her. He was, like, really in love with Anu. And that's the reason why he submitted to all of this. That's why he was suddenly fine not being this gregarious person in his friendship group. With Anu studying in Canberra and Joe living over 400 kilometers away in Newcastle, the relationship was becoming strained. After months of pressure, Joe finally relented and moved to Canberra to begin a new life with his girlfriend. We didn't want him to go there. We were so upset. We didn't want Joe to go down there. I was very angry with him. I said, why do you want to leave? Uh, you know, you got your family, you got your friends, your job here. If Joe Chinque hoped the move to the capital would appease Anu, and mend their frail relationship, he was wrong. Anu's personality was becoming more and more difficult for him to deal with. Anu Singh came across as a, as a young woman who, who craved that attention from Joe, and that she was creating a drama in her own life that she could be the central character of, and Joe was feeding her need for attention. He was feeding her with compliments. He was feeding her with reassurance that as time went on, she needed more. She had to up the stakes in the drama because was Joe getting to a point where he wasn't buying into her drama anymore? Was he getting fed up with having to constantly be there to make sure she knew she was beautiful? And how many times can you say that to somebody before you get fed up with it and you get tired of it? You want someone to get help, but they, they won't. As this lady in the video said, this is truly when Anu became the protagonist of her own story. And you need to understand at this point, at the point that he actually decided to move to Canberra, this relationship was already shaky. So when he moved, according to his friends again, it seemed like he saw it more as starting a new chapter in life. And they remember him buying this bright red car. And people thought, okay, he might be thinking of a future without Anu in Canberra or elsewhere. To Maria's godson, it seemed like he was putting things into action. But three months later, Joy Chinque will end up dead. As you know, once you move in with somebody, you start picking up on these things they're doing, you start picking up on certain issues that you might not have noticed before. Towards the end of 1996, Anu wasn't just complaining of her weight or of her skin. She started saying that she had multiple different conditions. She would complain of her legs aching, of hot flushes, pains down her body, and just feeling unwell constantly. So she would avoid even going out to, like, family functions or to meet with his friends. And he would kind of feel sorry for her, so he would always stay behind to take care of her. She would say she had a different head on a different body. She would say that she had things crawling under her skin. And every time there was a mention of her seeing a psychologist or a psychiatrist, she would go back to saying that there is nothing wrong with her mind. The problem was always just in her body. 
Her father finally got her to see some psychiatrists and they would kind of refer her from one to the other to see how she can be helped best. But she would continue to reject that there was nothing wrong with her physically and that the problem was just psychological. And this is, if you remember, she studied economics and then law on top of that. So she was still studying law. And her attendance got worse and worse. And even when she would appear in class, she kind of looked disheveled. She, like, wouldn't bother to, like, brush her hair or, like, put decent clothes on or just, I don't know, brush her teeth. She just looked like... She woke up and she walked into university kind of thing, compared to how she used to behave. And Joey started noticing the same and wouldn't say much, but it was also always in her head that she thought he saw her as this now disgusting, disheveled person who wasn't taking care of herself as much. So she noticed it's taking a toll on the relationship herself. This fellow law student, Mr. Mancini, actually said she only attended two lectures during the year of 1997, and even then, like, when they would meet up with her, her friends would notice that she could only talk about her health. She would tell Mr. Mancini that she thought she had AIDS. She would say it was unfair that she had it, and Joey probably wouldn't get it. When they determined that she didn't indeed have AIDS, well, then she had her body was actually damaged by taking this drug that was altering her metabolism, called oroxine. Then when that would be off the books, she would mention the possibility that she had MS, multiple sclerosis, that she had neuropathy, and that's why her legs were always heavy, that's why she had this fatigue constantly. By late 1997, she was doing a bunch of compulsive things. She would be taking 10 showers a day. And she also got herself, well, she would say that Joey suggested she takes Ipecac syrup. Ipecac is this syrup that you would basically take to vomit. So, she said Joey suggested it to her because, well, she was complaining about how she wants to lose weight and she has all this loose skin and wants to, like, clear out her stomach. But everybody said Joey first of all, had no idea of this syrup, of any medication. He just wasn't into drugs, into meds, into anything like that. And this is very much niche. So people suspect that she got herself onto this syrup. And then again, because of how her mind was working now and how paranoid she was, she attributed this dependence onto Joey and blamed him for introducing her to this syrup or just allowing her to take it. And this thing is not innocent. I don't know if they sell this over the counter here, but the side effects of this Ipecac thing can lead to serious poisoning, heart damage, and death. So mentally now she convinced herself that Joey suggested she would take this syrup and without this she wouldn't have had any problems and due to this she starts escalating. So her parents remember that she called them around this time and she said she was suicidal. She again complained about a bunch of things and said she felt debilitated. She didn't know what else to do. So her parents here ring the mental health crisis team in Canberra. They go there to make a welfare check and to refer her to a psychiatrist. But yet again, she's saying she doesn't want to take any meds because they will make her fat. 
During that same month, she started confessing to all of her friends about this syrup issue, right? That had it not been for Joey, she wouldn't be taking this syrup and she wouldn't be having any of these problems. So she is going to go onto a rampage and kill him and kill all of the doctors and that will solve all of her problems. And because she's studying law, she knew of all of the loopholes. She would know how to pretend to be insane and get away with it. Around this time, the timeline is murky, but let's introduce the two crucial characters. First one is Miss Kemek. So, this is the person that she went to, one of these friends from uni, and she just asked them, can you get me a gun? And this person, again, because they're studying law or whatever, they said no, but actually... I do know one of the junkies at the university and they can get you one. So she just kind of pointed her in the direction of somebody that can. And then kind of in the following conversations, ask her, why do you need a gun? Just out of curiosity. To which Anu would reply that she wanted to kill herself because Ipecac and all of these debilitating diseases that she had were leaving her with permanent neurological damage. So she just wanted a gun to shoot herself and to end it all. Then other two people that you need to know about are Mr. T. Let's call them the drug dealer. I'm not sure of the gender here. I think they just went by these abbreviations in court. But this is the person that would supply Anu with heroin. So she started visiting this person and started, first of all, chatting about heroin, checking for the prices, checking for the dosage of it, and then also learning how to inject it best. And like what dose would get you high, and what would maybe possibly kill you. And she would experiment on herself just to see how she felt after certain doses. And possibly one of the most important people in this story, apart from Anu and Joey, was this friend of hers called Madavi Rao. Madavi was... Technically an accomplice. She most definitely, if there was one single friend who could have gone to the police, it should have been Madawi. Because in 1997, Madawi and Anu would go to the library and they started researching suicide. And then Madawi would be the person who would go with Anu to Mr. T every single time. She would be the person that Anu would practice on because like she couldn't find her veins to inject heroin and both of them would, like, practice on each other, and they would be constantly researching suicide. In early October, Madavi and Anu contacted Mr. T, and they asked for two half weights of heroin, which cost about $500. No idea how they got that money, no idea what that dosage means, but that's the heroin they got. And Mr. T actually asked Anu why do you need this much heroin? Because apparently that's a lot of heroin. It's like $500 worth of it. To which she responds, someone's coming with me. And they're like, are you referring to suicide? And Anu is like, yes. And they just don't report this to anybody. Like, the girl just told you she's planning to commit suicide with another person. The most logical one would be her leading boyfriend. Maybe we should report this to somebody. No, that just never happens. And that is when the parties begin. Yeah, this is truly the core of this case. The most insane 
moment of this case because the parties are what makes this case go from mad to batshit insane. So on 20th of October, there is a first party at the house which Anu shares with Joey. It's a party among their low friends. Everybody comes. It's one of those dinner parties. So nothing like extreme. Everybody's just sitting, probably playing some drinking games and just eating dinner. And then they drink up until the early morning hours. And then the rest of them go their way. And Anu and Joey were to stay at their residence. This dinner party goes smoothly, and then the very next day, Anu makes a strange phone call to Miss Kamak. So Anu calls Kamak, and she gives them kind of a deal. What I mean by that is Kamak was previously prescribed Rohypnol. This is technically a date rape drug. So it works to, like, relax your muscles, to basically calm you down. But, I mean, on the market, it is known more for its sinister purpose, and that is date rape. So, this person was prescribed that before, so they could get a prescription for it again. And Anu, in exchange, would give them some of her heroin. She she had plenty. She bought it for, like, $500. So, Kamek is like, no problem. Like, here's my health card. Take it. Go take some Rohypnol. This is how much heroin I want. Again, nobody's suspecting anything odd. And also, of course, just like with everything, Anu is educating herself. She's asking them, okay, so how many of these tablets should I take? Like, without heroin? And then with heroin, if I really want to feel, like, super high, if I really don't want to think about anything else. And Tamek is just offering her advice. Like, this was my experience with or without heroin. That night and the next night, they're again having dinner parties constantly at their own house. And according to everybody that testified, all of these friends knew what Anu's plan was. That is the suicide pact. But nobody mentioned it at any of these parties. And people said nobody mentioned it or questioned it or asked Joey, did he know anything about this? Was he aware in any form about this? Because, well, they thought Anu was kind of saying this to them in private just to cause, you know, the dramatic effect. Because this is what she did. She was that person who would just tell you something ridiculous just to cause some dramatic effect, just to get a reaction out of you. So they were like, ah, typical, silly Anu, you know, this is what she says, she won't do anything. While she has both the date rape drug and the heroin, and they know about it. So after a few parties, I think in timeline, this is 22nd of October when this happens. All of the guests leave, And she gives Joey coffee at around 2 o'clock in the morning. Nothing makes sense in this story. But she laced this coffee with Rohypnol, the date rape drug. And then, as soon as he was asleep, she tries to inject him with heroin. But I don't know, did she wait too long? Because, again, I'm not really sure how this works. But basically, heroin congealed 
in this syringe so this really didn't work like it didn't work to the level where she overdosed him with his drug so the next day joey just wakes up and he's like whoa my head hurts like wow, what a hangover like i really should lay off the booze during these night parties and then always they're like oh shit he's alive this is when the timeline becomes important now it's dinner time on the 23rd of october 1997 everybody again comes for one of those dinners parties and Anu just seems to be bubblier than usual. She just seems to be like her old self you could say. So everybody's just like hey Anu like what's up? Like what the fuck? So everybody's just like hey Anu what's up? And she would say tonight is the night and they're like silly Anu you know. And she'd add she'd taken rohypnol and heroin, so she is smashed. So she's feeling like beyond happy. Nobody reports nothing odd here. Here, everybody leaves around 2 3 a.m. again, and Anu is left alone with Joey. This is when she repeats the process of spiking his coffee, lacing it with rohypnol. He again drinks the coffee at 2 a.m. and then goes to sleep. And this is when she doubles the dose of heroin that she injects him with, and this time the heroin wasn't congealed. So that's 24th morning hours, right? The next day, 25th, around 10, 19 p.m. So the whole day has passed, and now it's evening the next day. Anu makes a call to Mr. Mancini, like the first person, her law friend, that called her like disheveled and all of that at the beginning of this story. And this conversation happens. Anu said that she was concerned about Joey and wanted to know how strong these sleeping tablets are. She said he was in bed the whole day and got up only at 6 p.m. And then even after he woke up, he would just be sitting there all phased out saying, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. He just seemed to be out of it. And then Mr. Mancini said, well, don't worry about it. And he seems to be fine. Like, it's just a hangover. He will be fine in a couple of hours. Anu said, what if there is something wrong with him? And Mr. Mancini said, well, it's done now. At this point, you could hear Joey in the background saying, my mind's okay. So this Mr. Mancini person said, well, you see, you shouldn't be worried. He's fine. To which Anu replies, I certainly am. What have I done? Mr. Mancini says, nothing. It's not like there's going to be any long-term damage. At this point, Anu puts Joey on the phone to speak to Mr. Mancini, and Joey says, hey, May, my mind is 100% functional. My body just wants to sleep like crazy, that's all. It's just really mellow. It's great, except when I try to walk. Otherwise, it's 100%. She is worried for nothing, Joey says. This call was recorded on Mr. Mancini's answering machine. So this is why we have the transcript and we definitely know that Joey was still alive. And in the background of the call, once Joey's on the phone talking to this guy, well, you could kind of hear Anu laughing. I couldn't find a recording of it. I'm not sure if it's available on the internet, but that's what the transcript says. And also, in my mind, I think why she made this call is A, probably she didn't know it will be recorded because it kind of looks shady, but it would also be a proof that Joey was alive, that there is nothing wrong with him because of what happens next. 
So Joy is still alive that day. He goes back to sleep. So now this is a day and a half after she injected him with heroin. Once Joey wakes up again on the 26th of October now, and Anu realizes, oh, he's not dead yet, well, he sets a couple of things into motion. Around 9.30 a.m., Madavi Rao withdraws some money, withdraws $250 from her card. Around 10.30, Anu leaves her house and she is parked closely to Madavi Rao's house. In the meantime, Madavi went to Mr. T's place, the drug dealer, and she got enough heroin for around $250 and then she handed it over to Anu. Once supplied with heroin, she now goes home, injects Joey with his remaining doses, and then starts panicking, because she realized that now he is actually overdosing. So does she call the ambulance? No, she actually makes about four calls before that. At 11.09, she calls Madavi Rao. At 11.17, she calls Mr. T. At 11.54, she calls another friend of hers, Mr. Bowers Taylor. And at 11.55, she calls Miss Kamak. They only had a conversation from Miss Kamak from the court records. And during this conversation with them, she was asking, okay, what should I do? She was frantic. She was panicking. She was telling them that his lips are blue, that he is breathing like every 10 seconds. Seems like his breathing was slowing down by the minute. So Miss Kamak tried to suggest mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Then she kind of disappears off the phone for like 10-15 seconds, then comes back on it and says, now what? Every time that Miss Kamak would suggest that Anu calls the ambulance, she would say, I can't, I can't, I can't. There's all of this black stuff coming out of his nose, of his mouth. It's too late. He's gone anyway. This call, from the looks of it, is lasting forever. Anu is literally coming up with any single excuse not to call the ambulance. She says, I should come to you so that you give me the advice and then I will come back to try to resuscitate him again. To which again, Miss Kamek is like, you need to call the paramedics. If you call the paramedics, he will be fine. But then Anu again suggests, I should pick you up. You are the only one who knows what to do. And Miss Kamek is saying, you don't, it doesn't sound like he has two minutes, let alone 20 minutes for you to pick me up. Hang up, call the freaking paramedics, try to save his life. And finally, after going back and forth, Miss Kamek said, look, Anu, if you call the paramedics, you will have an angry boyfriend when he wakes up. If you don't, you will have a murder charge on your hands. To which she said, shit, you're right. And 36 hours after injecting her boyfriend with heroin, she finally called the emergency services. So if you remember, she started calling her friends at 11.09, she made the call to Miss Kamek at 11.54, and she made the 000 the emergency call at 12.10 p.m. So like, even after injecting him with heroin, she at least waited for over an hour to make this call. When the triple zero call was played to court, I think one of the first things that Anu Singh says fairly calmly she indicates to the operator, I'd like to report a potential overdose. The operator questions her potential overdose. Um, 
can you tell us what you mean? And then this wild swaying begins of her being dishonest. She gives the wrong address. She gives the wrong name. She, she calls herself Olivia. So she's actually impeding emergency services attempts to, to get help to this man that she supposedly loves. As you could hear, she's doing everything possible to impede them getting to the location further, giving a fake name, giving a fake address. Also, just from the statement analysis point of view, I have a person who's potentially overdosed. The detachment levels, this is something like a paramedic would say at a scene where maybe they can't even like identify your gender and they're just there like... I have a person who is in this condition. Not something you would say when it's your boyfriend, it's your loved one. I just wanted to mention that because nobody does. This is like next level detachment from the person that is on the scene trying again to distance herself, calling herself Olivia, giving them a fake address. Like, is she even mentally there? The paramedics make it to the scene fairly quickly, at 12.18, actually. I mean, considering the fact that she didn't give them the actual address at first, and then finally did. So they make it to the scene, and she's just, like, frantically grabbing this paramedic by the arm and being like, is he going to leave? He had a lot last night. So they ask her, okay, what did he have? How much heroin did he overdose on? She said 150, then the paramedic said, okay, is that three lots? She says, yeah. Then they ask her, did he have anything else? She says, Rohypno, also within coffee. And there was this mug next to the bed, so she didn't even try to, like, conceal anything because this was recorded in evidence. But what I gather from this is that she is not the one volunteering the information here. They are having to milk it out of her. Further than that, like, she is there sobbing, grasping at his body, trying to revive him. They noted down that she did try mouth-to-mouth resuscitation before they arrived on the scene. She's saying, can't you do anything? And everybody, again, notes down that she is visibly distressed. Once the police actually made it to the scene, them and the paramedics had to physically remove her off the body once they declare him dead because she would just be screaming, no, no, don't leave me, Joey. (sighs) And God, this part kills me so much. Around this very time, once they removed her off the premises and brought her to the police station, the phone at Joey's and Anu's flat rings, and a sergeant that was still on the scene answers the phone call, and it's Maria, his mom, on the other end of the line, and she just knew. She just knew. She's like, why would the police officer be answering the phone call? She said she killed him, didn't she? So as his parents are traveling to Canberra to identify his body and to put him to rest, she is brought into police interrogation. And there is this sassy-ass police officer that truly made my day while I was watching this video, who said there was a lot of wiping the invisible tears while she was doing this interrogation. And remember, at this point, they put the cause of death as asphyxiation, because they assumed he died of the overdose, because of all the things that were coming out of, like, his mouth and nose. But then the police officer said, you know, when we were at the scene of the crime, I know that you were frantic, you probably don't remember everything that you were saying, but you said it should have been both of us. So was this supposed to be like a suicide pact? And she's like, yeah, yeah, I should have been dead as well. And they kind of keep asking like, 
but why did you never go ahead with it yourself? Like, not that we want you dead, none of us do, but it doesn't seem like you are the one who has any, like, heroin in your system, or that you overdosed on any level, but he literally died from overdose. And she would never give a straight answer to this. And how she explained that she was definitely gonna go ahead with her part of this suicide pact was, well, she put Rohypnol, what is it called? She put Rohypnol into his coffee so that he falls asleep and can't actually prevent her from committing suicide. But then, you know, she injected him and as she was about to inject herself, well, then all of this happened and she was suddenly frantic. It was the flight or fight mode and she wanted to actually save Joey. So she didn't have the time to inject herself with heroin. You know what part of the story doesn't make sense here? The part where she goes on that morning after a day and a half to get more heroin. Yeah, that part. And she described this whole situation, which is something she will come to regret later, as a university assignment. In a way that it was something to do. It was the purpose. So she suddenly saw this and something kicked in and she had to try to attempt to save his life. So at this point, the police is like, okay, this is weird as hell. We need to continue investigating her. But who the hell provide her with heroin? Like, this isn't a one-person mission. She didn't just come up with this heroin herself. So they were like, who else should we be looking into here? Like, was somebody else aware of this and just not speaking up? And they didn't have to look far to find her accomplice, Madawi Rao, who went to the library to research suicides with her, who also helped her supply herself with heroin, and also who taught her how to best inject it. Madawi appeared to be the person to also bring people together for these parties, so to always make sure that their friends got invited. And at first, the two of them were supposed to have a joint trial. But then they realized these are two completely different kind of offenses. And also, Anu exercised her right to eliminate the jury. So to only have a trial by judge. And somehow, when it was time for Madawi's trial, she was exonerated of all of the charges. And Anu would later say that she doesn't put any blame on Madawi, that putting her to jail wouldn't have eased Maria and Nino's pain any further, and that it was only her fault. This is not the first time you will get pissed off by a trial in this case, not to spoil anything, but this is why this case is batshit insane. So let's talk about Anu's trial. First of all, they changed the cause of death from asphyxiation to overdose, and they determined that the dose that killed him was injected to him between two and four hours before his death. And these experts looking at the toxicology report concluded that they were satisfied that the combination of rohypnol together with heroin would have caused this overdose. So, what the prosecution presented were these letters that they found in her locker. And in these letters, she admits that everything started in June 1997, which is, what, five, six months before these dinners, before everything. She admits going to the National Library with Madavi and learning about suicide. In those first letters, she admitted that in June, she was only thinking about herself dying. If you remember, she was really suicidal. This is when her parents got her to see therapists. But then, 
she read somewhere in some passage that once a partner dies, the other one either doesn't want to continue and then they die from like sorrow themselves or they remarry. So she decided she doesn't want any one of those two outcomes for Joey. So if she has to die, so does he. All of these inputs in these letters state sort of like step-by-step process, that she first tried looking for a gun, but then she decided to look for heroin, that then she decided she needs the sleeping tablets on top of that as well to take Joey with herself. And she calls these the acts of selfishness. So the first act of selfishness is her thinking he needs to die too. The second act of selfishness is her thinking she needs to get Rohypnol so that again she takes him with him. And the third act of selfishness is, remember the part when she thought she had AIDS? Well, she noted down in these letters that she thought of putting her blood in his food so that he can get AIDS too. But then where these letters go to kind of works more for the defense rather than the prosecution. So the defense used some of these because she goes on to say that she would be discussing this with her friends. And she would say all of these friends were helping me die. So I always wanted to die. I always wanted that to be the final outcome. And the reason why she prolonged calling the ambulance and didn't really want to call it in the first place and why she called all of those, like, four friends before that, well, if she did call the ambulance and Joey ended up being alive himself, then he would have placed her into an institution. And she just said, no way, no way to that. And in terms of her defense, what they really had to focus on were her mental health issues to prove the diminished responsibility. And this diminished responsibility is defined in this way. A person on trial for murder shall not be convicted for murder when they're suffering from an abnormality of mind, whether this is from a condition of arrested or retarded development of mind or any inherent cause, or whether it is induced by disease or injury that substantially impaired his or her mental responsibility for the act of the omission. So here they had to prove her mental health issues for that disease or injury part of it because she wasn't born disabled in any way. She wasn't born impaired. So how are they going to do this? They had her dad testify as one of the first witnesses. He obviously testified to her childhood, to all of the clinginess that we spoke in the first half of this video. You know, everything from how she clinged to her mother, to how she clinged to men, to how she clinged to her parents in her first year of uni. So then that was further supported by the second witness, Dr. Byrne or Byron. This guy was a psychiatrist, so he was one of the experts. And he further supported that Anu would just pass on this kind of clinginess from, like, one person to the next. So he presented her with 10 cards. He asked her to respond to the images that were on these 10 cards. And her response to this showed him a long-standing hunger to be connected with someone. Dr. Byrne also said that Anu had borderline personality disorder characterized by problems with self-image and in relating to others' impulsive behavior and depression. 
And when they ask him, okay, but logistically, how did this affect her on the events of 24th to 26th October? Because it's kind of like 36 hours that we are talking about here. This doctor said that it diminished her ability to control her behavior and also to think about any further consequences. And let me put a clip in because I'm not sure I can explain this well myself because logistically nobody does explain. Like, how would she be able to function on a day-to-day basis? Or how over 36 hours she would not have realized she is doing something wrong and have stopped herself? Like, so I don't logistically on like day-to-day basis understand this diminished responsibility. So this is again one of the psychiatrist's opinions. There was, in my view, no doubt that this woman had a significant mental disorder which had been troubling her on and off for a number of years. This is why they went for diminished responsibility, not for insanity. I mean, her responsibility was diminished by the depression, not removed by the depression. Yes, this woman planned uh, and carried out a killing. Uh, Yes, uh, this woman uh, told other people that she was going to kill this man. So there was very clearly a knowledge of what she was doing. The diminished responsibility simply says that the nature of this disorder was one which affected her judgment and affected other aspects of her mental function. To support this, her defense attorney, Mr. Papas, actually outlined everything that we as observers... I wanted to say normal people, but we as observers see to be sinister, such as her planning the parties, such as her planning the whole heroin thing, such as her going to buy extra heroin once he wasn't dead. The first injection of the congealed heroin, the fact that she attempted to do it before and she never stopped herself, she just went to buy some more. This whole friendship with Madavi Rao that revolved around the planning, that revolved around getting the gun, getting the heroin, going to the library, researching about suicide. Mr. Papa said, well, no, you shouldn't be looking at this as evil. Rather, all of these are a reference to the abnormality of mind. Had she not been insane, had she not suffered from all of these diseases, she wouldn't have done any of this. Her defense lawyer really had the experts focusing on her borderline personality disorder, especially outlining all of the four common symptoms, such as problems in establishing a self-image, mood disorder, depression and mood swings, problems relating to other people, and usually a history of significant impulsivity. Typically, they said they would develop paranoid ideas that would often associate with symptoms about their body. And when they tried to decide upon her ability to control her conduct on a scale between 1 to 10, where 1 is a rational killing and 10 would be grossly psychotic and insane killing, she would come up in the 6 to 7 range. I don't know, guys. I have a friend who has BPD and is probably watching this video and is also probably not plotting to inject and overdose somebody with heroin. So, ew. I think this is kind of undermining the actual disorder and actually undermining, like, what people are going through and just using it to justify the fact that this woman might have been a lot more calculated than we all think. This psychiatrist also said that this 
clear sense of detachment, sense of unrealness, the fact that she would say, and then the reality hit me, or why she only called the ambulance after literally people told her and repeated multiple times what would happen if she doesn't, were what is described in the borderline personality disorder phenomenology when people in that state are confronted by overwhelming reality. And they actually said the perfect example for that was the moment when she said, today is the day, remember, at the party? Well, they said just the level of glibness, just the way she brushed that comment off shows that she is actually suffering from BTD, because otherwise she would have taken this much more seriously and would have had the reality check much earlier. And finally, remember that phone call that she had with Miss Kamok, where they reiterated again and again, if you don't call the ambulance, this is what's gonna happen, where Anu said, shit, you're right. That was, again, the moment when she snapped into the reality check. And even though she is an intelligent person, even though she did study law, well, just by her not appearing to have thought about this as a criminal act with actual consequences, again, shows her mental health issues. At some point, you start buying into it. You're like, this kind of sounds like they're making sense out of it, so I should be too, right? right? Because I am not, like, I am not seeing it this way, but you're like, wow, I think I might be the crazy one. I think I should be buying into this. And finally, while she was awaiting trial, Anu was corresponding with her parents. And this gave her defense lawyers what they really desperately needed, which was the remorse. She would write, oh, mom, what a tragedy. But even if I wanted to die, why take joy too? That's selfish and awful. My selfishness has ruined so many lives. I wonder where he is now. Do you think he's in heaven? Will I be with him if I also die? And what about his parents? How they must be suffering now? Badly. They will never get over this. They have lost a son. Didn't I think of them? Loved me so much, would have made a perfect husband and father. Ruined. Perfect life. Ruined. Because of my own utter stupidity and selfishness. My life is over. I made a wrong choice when so many others were available at the time. Worked with druggies rather than with Joey. Should have protected him and worked with him. Now so many lives are ruined. I wish these druggies were dead and no Joey. No Joey. Mom, please, no Joey. I know I can't turn back time. My life is over. Again, not to analyze somebody's statement again, but she is mostly focusing on how her life is over. And that is the prevalent theme but they use this in court to just prove that she is thinking about Joey's family and she regrets everything that she has done. What her defense team had to prove was that there was a clear attempt to save his life. And here they focused on the fact that she did call the friends to try to get them to help. Then she called the ambulance. They kind of neglected everything else, you know, like the wrong name, the wrong address that she had given, and all of that, that she has tried mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, and finally how she acted on the scene. And the amount of arguments and this level of reasoning by the defense kind of overshadowed any argument that the prosecution might have had. So the prosecution, as I mentioned, focused on like her letters basically saying, okay, she has planned all of this. 
and they focused and had witnesses on the stand testify to how narcissistic this person actually was, how she had to be the center of attention, how nobody actually reported this to the police because they just discarded it as just another dramatic reaction that Anu wanted to cause. They referred to parts of one of her diaries where she wrote that this guy rang her again and he definitely worships the ground I walk on and I love it. That she would describe herself in these diaries as a confirmed bitch, vain, materialistic, self-opinionated, lascivious. So that the essence of what she was saying is she has all of these flaws and the guys still worship the land that she walks on and just adore her and that that is how life should continue for her. And before I tell you what the verdict was, let's just briefly discuss her friends because none of her friends were prosecuted except from Madawi and then she was exonerated of everything and I just can't help thinking how much this reminds me of, like, a plot of how to get away with murder. Because, yes, these friends might have been just naive people that studied the law at the same time. Like, some of these people might be lawyers now, which is such a concerning part of this whole story. So, yes, it might be that they just brushed it off as, oh, typical Anu, this is what she does on the reg. But what if, just, like, in... TV shows like How to Get Away with Murder, they might have found their scapegoat. What if this is a lot more sinister? And these people were in on it to a certain degree anyways. They all knew what she was planning to do. One supports with the heroin. The other one tells her how to inject it. The other one goes to the library with her. And all of them then clean their hands with it. And only one person goes down for it. And nobody in any of these source materials that I have read sees it that way. So I guess, again, that I must be insane here. And all of her friends are definitely really innocent. So they provided, like, these transcripts of conversations between her friends, where most of them just said, no, Joey is not in danger. And then they kept repeating it, because Anu is definitely not going to go ahead with this. And all of these conversations were based on the fact that Anu is just doing this for the dramatic effect. She won't even kill herself, like, let alone somebody else with it. So then they would be like, okay, so why does she have all of this heroin then? Why does she buy all of it? And this other person would again keep repeating, Joey is not in danger, he shouldn't be aware of anything, Anu just wants to take it herself. Look at that, she just took it at a party last night, so... Clearly, she is not overdosing anybody else with it. Defense lawyer Mr. Papa's conclusion was that his client, Anu, formed a plan to drug Mr. Cinque so that he would be unconscious while she committed suicide and that she injected him with heroin in order to achieve that end. She did this and then realized she doesn't have enough heroin left for herself, so she goes to Mr. T's house, gets more heroin, comes back, but by that point, Mr. Cinque is convulsing, everything is coming out of like his mouth and nose, and she decides to actually ring the ambulance instead. 
And also, despite of us having all of these calls on the record, what we don't have is the time that she actually discovered the state that Joey was in. So maybe she was downstairs. Maybe she wasn't even in the bedroom when she made all of those calls because we only have the transcript for one. The last one before she called the ambulance. So the last one that was recorded on that voicemail machine. So once this was all presented to the judge, his verdict was that he was quite satisfied that her mental responsibility for the act was substantially impaired. She got a 10-year sentence to serve in prison with the possibility of parole after four years. And spoiler alert, she got out after those four years. Now, I am not a psychiatrist. I am not a psychologist in any way, shape, or form. But I am also not the only person disagreeing with this impaired, diminished responsibility. The police officers working at the case said that she wanted to be perceived as a victim. It was clear to them as soon as they were on that scene how she started acting, how she was hugging his body. And then from what perceived at the trial, like all of the letters between her and her family, like every single further action by her just kind of enforced this idea for the police. And as for myself, I would maybe possibly accept, okay, they convinced me. It makes sense with her future actions. If now she was to have spent those four years in prison and you would hear accounts of her mental health issues displaying, you would hear accounts of her BPD and how she was acting in prison. Or further in her life, not that I'm saying that I'm expecting her to commit crime again, but I'm expecting this to show in some way or for her to mention it in some way. But that is something that doesn't happen. She was released from prison in 2001 and then briefly got back to it for like a couple of months in 2004 because she was found in the possession of marijuana, which is like illegal in Australia. And she actually finished her degree in prison. And then after her release from prison in 2010, she started her doctorate. She started studying for PhD. And in 2012, she was awarded a doctorate for her thesis that was under the name Offending Women Toward a Greater Understanding of Women's Pathways Into and Out of Crime in Australia. This thesis outlines five major pathways that led female prisoners to crime unstable upbringings, sexual and physical abuse, drug use, economic marginality, and mental illness. The last interviews made with Anu were in 2017, and they interviewed her boyfriend of 19 years at the time. When interviewed, this guy Aaron said that they met when she was on trial. And, well, when this guy asked him, so, since dating Anu, do you ever just, like, wake up thinking there's gonna be a needle stuck in your arm? To which Aaron's response was, well, if I wake up with a needle stuck in my arm, I wake up. And if I don't wake up, then I don't wake up. So they are a match made in heaven, I guess. And during this interview, Anu said that she doesn't understand her motivation either. She says that the years of mental health kind of led to it, but that there was no rational explanation at all, that she was mentally ill, and that was it. 
During this interview, they also questioned her on Helen Garner's book, Joy Cinque's Consolation, that the movie was also based on, and she said she has high respect for her. She said this book was an extremely noble effort to get the Cinque side of the story because they were not represented in court and they didn't get to have their say. But that after meeting with Cinque's, she doesn't really know if Helen wanted to meet her. When they further pressed her on Joey's parents, she said she did try to reach out to them, but she understands that they don't want anything to do with her. But then when this news segment was running, they were re-interviewing Maria and Nina for this crime and investigation segment. And then she did send them a video, sort of like an apology. So I'm just thinking, you did not change Anu, did you, girl? If they don't want anything to do with you, then respect that. Why are you sending them a statement? Or is it just so that you can appear in the news again and be relevant, be the center of attention? In this message, she said, I would like to say to them that I'm deeply, deeply sorry for what happened. And if I could, if there was any way I could turn back the clock, I would do so in a heartbeat. To which Maria responded, live on this segment, there is nothing in this world that you can do. Don't ever think about coming near us. You have killed the most precious thing I had in my life, my first son, my firstborn. The one that was going to carry his grandfather's name is not here anymore. I call you the devil, and you are the devil. Monster. You have destroyed my family completely. She is sorry just because of what happened to her, not because of what she did to my son. With Maria, what a lot of people don't realize is that she lost a child at the hands of someone she invited into her own home and embraced as a potentially a daughter-in-law. She cooked for this woman. You know, an Italian woman, the, the, the way they express love is through cooking. And she sat at that very table where they still sit down every day and have their lunch, you know, and served her a meal. You know, the, the woman who was responsible for killing her son in the most brutal of fashions, he took two and a half days to die. He was tortured. When uh, October comes, a terrible time. It's best that it's worse. Nobody rings you. Either they remember or not, we don't know. You don't feel like you're out. Even if you see something funny, you, know, you start laughing, you stop. Because you think, no, I, I should not enjoy myself. I've got no right to enjoy myself. Because you think, why should I? She was also at the time working with this filmmaker, making a documentary on her story. I don't think this ever got out. I'm not sure if she is still doing this, but it just shows you who she still is as a person. She is not satisfied with how others portrayed her in her book. She doesn't think that they have mentioned her mental health issues adequately, and she wants to still be the center of attention, play the victim, and have her side of the story out there. And what came to light with this interview was that she was actually working at this community center, handing out syringes, so uh, people crashed down on that 
quickly and she was fired from that job and hopefully now more people were familiar with her face because again the crime happened in 97 and then this interview only came in 2017 so people kind of familiarized themselves with her face again and to really wrap up this story let me end with maria's words on how she imagines her life would look like if joy were alive today He would probably have gray hair like me, and he would be at the top of his job. And he would come to see us and look after us, because we are getting old. After he was gone, it makes everything crumble. His young brother was crushed, too. I want people to keep remembering him, and not just what we lost, but what everybody lost because he was going to do so many things. And then the ending credits go on this crime investigation segment, and they just say, Nino, his dad, died in 2017. And when I tell you I have not cried for a case like that, oh my god, her parents were golden. The salt of the earth. Like, for them to even want to give this interview, for them to just desperately want to keep this story alive... And for his father to have died without her still being in prison for what she has done, she got the lightest sentence. And I will just never get over it. That is the case of Anu Singh. That is the case of Anu Singh. Now, I just wanted to go through a couple of things here. Firstly, my question to you, well, is, have you heard about this story? Why not? Are you from Canberra or, like, Sydney? Is this spoken about in Australia? What is the consensus? Okay, that was, like, ten questions. The main question being, do you think she would have done it without the audience? Without these organized dinners that she had with her friends, without these dinner parties, without the component of other people and their friends knowing... I think there is something there. I think her narcissism, the fact that she wanted to be the center of attention, really heavily played there. Because they didn't have dinner parties from what I have heard, in this case, before the sequence of events was set in motion here. And also, I feel this allowed her for a lot more control. Because you can't neglect the fact that both Madavi and Joey were immigrants. Kind of like her, to be honest, but she did move to Australia when she was a toddler, so she probably didn't feel like an immigrant, like maybe the other two were. So they were more vulnerable and more susceptible to her control because they were immigrants. We just further played to her feeling omnipotent, feeling like powerful and that she was really in control here. And in terms of audience, so not just that she was in control of these maybe potentially immigrants and kind of played around with that idea, but also when looking at this case from a psychological point of view, you can't neglect the bystander effect. Because these friends, if nothing sinister was happening, then just acted by the idea of the bystander effect, which is, well, it's not my problem. Somebody else should be reporting it. She has closer friends. Why are they not calling the police? You know, I'm just a drug dealer. I'm just a heroin provider. And that she knew because of how narcissistic she was, because of how calculated she was, that this is going to provide her with the audience. Because she knew, by this mentality, nobody 
will report it because they believe that she was this dramatic person who was doing all of this for attention and they didn't really believe that she was going to do it, which provided her with this free audience. She didn't even have to put any effort in obtaining one. And even when we put that into the perspective of who Anu Singh is today, well, three, four years ago when she last gave those interviews, she wants to make a documentary on herself. So she, again, wants specific type of audience, the audience that believes her, the audience that sees her as a victim. She wants to drive her own narrative. And I find that very interesting because I believe that the actions you pursue after you have either been charged or made a mistake truly show who you really are. So, like, even if she had done something terrible in the past and now has changed, you know, received therapy, isn't so self-centered, I would have been like, okay, cool. But clearly, the fact that she wants to still profit out of somebody else's sorrow kind of makes me think that she still wants an audience and she just wants the audience that will believe her. And secondly, let me just walk you through my thought process when researching this and when writing a script. Because obviously, after reading, rereading, scripting this a couple of times, I found one other way to look at this story. So when I write a script for these cases, it's at first like really rough, just me like packing all of the source material, packing all of the content that I need to mention, and then I kind of structure it in the timeline, and then it's like an actual script, something that jumped up at me was what if the reason why this case fits so well into Gone Bad, why there might have been just an actual switch, why she might not have suffered from some of these diseases or was piling all of them up, was actually that she might have plotted all of this only once she started dating Joey. Once you read the script, you can really see it as somebody with severe mental health issues. And I'm really not trying to undermine that in any way, shape, or form. But then once you read it a couple of times, you just start thinking, what if this was completely sinister from the get-go? What if she used these real mental health issues that she most probably had to a certain degree, but she dramatized them to, again, just like with everything else in her life, work into her favor and for her to be able to plot the next steps. That is a more evil take on this case. But just when you look at it as a whole, there is like a clear switch when she just starts escalating. And I'm kind of starting to think like, why did it happen that way? Because once she starts, she never stops. And every next thing is a bit crazier than the one she had done before. There's never, like, a de-escalation in her process. Which kind of made me think, when I was reading through this script, yes, this can very much be seen as the impaired ability to think due to her mental health issues, And also, it can very much be seen as somebody who has calculated every step of this crime in such a way to get away with it. Now I'm gonna leave you reminisce on those two morbid theories, the audience and the Miles conspiracy one, where everything is calculated and everything is more evil than it seems. This case, by the way, did anybody get Amanda Knox vibes? Amanda Knox was exonerated. School, she's not guilty. It's fine. 
but in a sense where Amanda Knox even today will grab any interview opportunity that she can. And in none of those interviews, she speaks about the victim and their family. And that kind of strikes me yet again as somebody with like similar personality traits. So just yet another thing to ponder on. But now I'm gonna escort myself out to this video. And I think another one is coming at you this very Friday. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Cool. On to <laughs> the outtakes. God, I need a breather after this case. Bye. <laughs> need therapy, man. Hell, a breather, man. <laughs> need a therapy more than a breather. Oh, look at that! It's Paris! It's Parisine! Okay. <laughs> Why are you okay? You are truly not okay today! You're stepping as Was that an insect? You're losing it! I can't be chasing a freaking bee in the house! I need to be recording! I literally have like four hours to show up for work! <laughs> What is my life? Please subscribe. I need to leave customer service job. I beg of you. This is not a plea for help. This is literally like the last straw. Okay, stop making it dramatic. Drink some beverage. A bit of bev. You just need like the orgasm eye roll. <laughs> is that your orgasm? <laughs> you shall not, you cannot post this online. <laughs> it's fine, nobody makes it to the other things as well. This is not, if you do, by any chance, this is not my orgasm face. What is this video about? What the fuck are you doing? I have never said liposuction as a full word. It's just lipo, innit? It's like suction pie, just sounds suctioning. Suctioning you. What is with you like arching your back? They see you have a double chin, anyways. They see your fucking long ass giraffe neck, anyways. Cool. Still the same camera, man. Just uh, the angle is like a centimeter away. Like they know it's still the same camera. Is that the word? Incestual, incestual, incest, 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 incestuous, incestuous, incestuous. My life. Google. <laughs> Google. Incestuous. Pronounce. Please pronounce incestuous. Pronounce. Incestuous. What is this accent? You are, are you reproaching Google for accent? See? <laughs> See? Approaching machine for the accent, Maya, bitch. As this lady in the video said, this is truly when Anu became the protagonist of her own story. You know how you have tech talks? Tech talks. <laughs> Team times, yeah. TikToks, Maya. You know how you have TikToks where like people are like, oh, I'm the protagonist of this own story. Yeah, this is Anu at this very moment. She is like every other TikTok that you see that is like that. Which, come on, guys, get, get new ideas. Talk about true crime like your girl. Hey, TikTok handle, Maya's meltdown. Okay, every chance you get to plug, shameless, shameless. She's like, oh my gosh, she's such a narcissist. And you're like, TikTok. In early October, Anu and Madawi go to Mr. T and they ask for two... Oh, for fuck's sake, I don't know, drugs, man. I don't know what is this. I don't know. Is this a lot of heroin? I don't know heroin. Why do they need to inject it? Why are drugs so, like, hard to consume? It's like you need to snort it or inject, like... Oh, God. Why does it not deter people? They're like anti-vax people out there, but they're like, no, I'll inject myself with heroin. You're like, how does that make like any fucking sense in your head? Or like people who are like snorting shit up their nose, like, oh my god. 
like this huge ass nose is already suffering just with breathing. Like imagine if I shoved up like some freaking cocaine up it. Like how is it not deterrent enough? Just the way of consumption of drugs. I will never understand. I will always be a nerd. I don't care. I just don't know. Don't touch my nose. Don't touch my veins. Like don't think I should be saying this in a video, but nobody makes it to the outtakes anyways. He weighs you out of her league. Way too out of her league. And, well, if you notice some of the outtakes, I'm not into white guys, okay? My husband is black, like... And still, I acknowledge him way out of her league. Like, Jesus Christ, like, why do these narcissists get to get the best of them? Like, what the fuck? Also, these reenactments, right, in this crime investigation video that I'm showing, the woman in them the most gorgeous Indian woman they could have found and I know in real life dead eyes. This is why I have chosen this case because it popped up in like one of my articles at random and I was just like, who the fuck is this woman with dead behind her eyes? Just dead death. And the people behind the reenactment were like, no, let's choose like Miss fucking India. Like, no, no quadra. No quadra does not match up. It's reenactment, like, why do you expect miracles?